Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington, in for Jordan Morey as your host this week. Wherever you're listening from today, in the Hoosier State or beyond, thanks for joining us. Like we usually do, we'll open today's show with some recent headlines before diving into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Austin Parrish, Dean of the Indiana University Mauer School of Law. Like all of you listeners, we've been quite busy to start off the new year, so let's dive right in. It's January 26, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some COVID news. The Omicron variant of the coronavirus has caused a spike in COVID cases statewide, prompting multiple county courts to scale back on jury trials or suspend them for the foreseeable future. The latest counties to join that trend are two of Indiana's largest, Allen and Marion counties. The Allen Superior Court announced that beginning January 24th, jury trials will be halted until at least February 14th. The Fort Wayne courts cited a, quote, dramatic increase in positive COVID tests and illnesses among litigants, jurors, prosecutors, and other staff as the reason for its decision. The pause is expected to impact five to ten trials. Meanwhile, in Marion County, the Circuit and Superior Courts jointly decided on January 20th that all jury trials will be continued until after January 28th. Starting January 31st, the court's plan is to resume jury trials using a phased-in approach. Earlier this month, the Indianapolis courts continued jury trials until after January 21st. But with nearly 100 court staffers testing positive for the virus since January 3rd, the court made the decision to extend the continuance. As we've previously reported, the Madison Circuit Court has suspended jury trials until the county moves out of the red advisory level. As of the day we're recording this, each of Indiana's 92 counties is in the red level, meaning the seven-day positivity rate for all COVID tests is at least 15% or more. Lake County has also continued its jury trials through January 31st. Court responses to the COVID-19 pandemic change frequently, so we'll work to keep you updated. Check back with our website regularly for the latest news on federal and state court COVID procedures. Staying on the topic of the pandemic, we have an update on state and federal laws regarding COVID vaccine mandates. On January 13th, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a federal requirement that businesses with 100 or more employees require their workers to either get a COVID vaccine or get tested weekly. But the justices did uphold a vaccine mandate for most healthcare workers in the U.S. Just a few days later, the Indiana House passed a controversial bill requiring employers who require a COVID vaccine to grant religious exemptions to any employee who asks and to grant medical exemptions with a signed note from a qualified medical professional. Employees who don't want to get the vaccine would also have the option to undergo regular COVID testing at no cost to them. According to our sister paper, the Indianapolis Business Journal, House Bill 1001 would ensure that employees who are denied an exemption and are fired for not getting the vaccine are eligible for unemployment benefits. The bill now heads to the Indiana Senate, where its future is less sure. Like House Bill 1001, Senate Bill 3 creates administrative tools to allow Governor Eric Holcomb to end the statewide public health emergency. But Senate Bill 3 does not include language regarding vaccine mandates. We'll keep you updated on this important legislation as it moves through the State House. Staying in the State House, we have some news for you about a bill designed to partially roll back the wide-ranging criminal justice reform legislation passed back in 2014. That year, the Indiana General Assembly passed House Enrolled Act 1006, which implemented several criminal justice reform measures. 
One of those measures required that offenders convicted of a level 6 felony would be housed in a county jail, with a few exceptions. The idea was that these offenders could stay close to home and receive treatment for any underlying mental health and addiction struggles. But according to lawmakers, the result has been different in practice. Rather than pairing inmates with local service providers, local jail leaders say their facilities have become mental health treatment facilities, a job they're not equipped to do. So in response, lawmakers are now considering House Bill 1004, which gives judges discretion to place a level 6 felony offender in the Department of Correction rather than a county jail. House Bill 1004 comes from Representative Randy Fry, a Republican from Greensburg. Fry says his bill is the result of new data the state has been able to collect since House Enrolled Act 1006 was enacted eight years ago. But Democratic Representative Matt Pierce had a different view. Pierce voted in favor of House Bill 1004, but he said doing so felt like surrendering to failure. According to Pierce, the General Assembly failed to uphold its end of the deal to give counties funds to open mental health treatment facilities in their communities. Without those funds, Pierce said jails were left to care for inmates with mental illnesses that jail staff aren't equipped to handle. Fry rejected the notion that the General Assembly has failed, but he acknowledged that the Department of Correction has more resources to treat inmates struggling with addiction or other mental illness. And he stressed that some level 6 felony offenders can still be placed in a county jail. The difference is that House Bill 1004 gives judges the discretion to make that placement. The bill passed the Indiana House with a 90-3 vote. It has been referred to the Indiana Senate, but has not yet been given a committee assignment in the upper chamber. We'll keep you updated on the bill's progress. Now, let's check in with IL reporter Katie Stancombe, who has news about this year's race for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. Katie? Right now, Democratic incumbent Ryan Mears has some competition for his spot as Marion County's prosecutor. On January 18th, Republican Cindy Carrasco announced her candidacy for the position. Carrasco is a former Deputy General Counsel for Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb and says that building relationships with stakeholders and members of the community would be her top priorities. She says that her time working at the state level gave her leadership qualities that will make her a strong prosecutor. Although she relocated from Texas to the Hoosier State to make Indianapolis her home years ago, Carrasco says the city is hardly recognizable today. She's chomping at the bit to crack down on the violent crime that she says is plaguing Indianapolis. I want our city to be safe. I want us to be able to come back downtown without necessarily having to ask the question, you know, is it safe? If elected, her other priorities would include fostering a top-notch team of prosecutors, addressing the office's current backlog of cases, and reestablishing a gun violence unit. At the end of the day, Carrasco says she wants people to know that the reason she's running for prosecutor is because, quote, our status quo is not working. I think Indianapolis needs a leader in the role of prosecutor, and I believe I'm that person. Mears, who wasn't available to comment for this week's podcast, has also announced that he will try to keep his office. His campaign priorities address violent crime, empowering youth, marijuana, conviction integrity, driver's license restoration, and tackling hate crimes. Mears has faced criticism since becoming prosecutor, though, particularly for his decision not to prosecute low-level marijuana offenses and for not seeking a red flag hearing in 2020 for the gunman who killed eight people at a FedEx facility in April 2021. Stay tuned for more coverage about the prosecutor's race. Thanks, Katie. Now for a story that Jordan has been working on for a few months. 
You may remember that back in October, he worked with the IBJ to bring you the story of Steve Sanders, a professor at the IU Mauer School of Law who claimed the university violated Indiana's open door law when it decided to pay former university president Michael McRobbie more than $500,000 for consulting services, but without holding a public hearing on that agreement. The school has denied any wrongdoing, but university trustees held a voice vote on the consulting contract on December 3rd. Now, Jackie Simmons, the university's vice president and general counsel who oversaw the university's response to Sanders' complaint, has been terminated without cause. An agreement between Simmons and new IU president Pamela Witten was signed in December. That agreement notes Simmons was being terminated without cause, but that the school would allow her to retire. Simmons was placed on unpaid administrative leave on January 1st, and the agreement seems to indicate that she'll remain a university employee until June 30th at the latest. Now, to be clear, none of the documents that Jordan obtained on behalf of Indiana Lawyer directly ties Simmons' departure to Sanders' open-door complaint. It's also not clear whether Simmons is leaving her role with the university as a normal part of Witten's transition to president. We've asked IU for clarification, but the school has only said that Simmons, quote, will be retiring as vice president and general counsel after nine years of dedicated service to Indiana University, end quote. The position of IU vice president and general counsel is currently posted for applicants on the university's website. For now, Joseph Skodro is serving as interim vice president and general counsel. Next, some law firm news. Indianapolis-based law firm Ice Miller recently launched its new Racial Justice Fellowship Program, a scholarship program focused on giving minority law students support and legal experience to create a more diverse pipeline into the legal profession. The idea for the Racial Justice Fellowship Program came from Ice Miller's Racial Justice Task Force. The task force was created in May 2020 following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Michael Tooley is a partner in Ice Miller's Indianapolis office, and he serves on the Racial Justice Task Force. Tooley says the idea for the fellowship was inspired by a church service he attended here in Indianapolis. During the service, a pastor asked a question, who is flourishing because of their power and influence? That question prompted Tooley to address the obstacles minority students face to getting into law school and establishing legal careers. Matthew Miller is a partner in the firm's Columbus, Ohio office, and he chairs the task force. Miller told Indiana Lawyer that the purpose of the fellowship is to, quote, utilize our coaching and the scholarship in our summer program to really help develop the skills of this young law student and future attorney to be part of our Ice Miller family, end quote. The program's first fellow is Joshua Duffy Cooper, a first-year law student at Howard University School of Law. Duffy Cooper and future program fellows will receive professional coaching from the firm's lawyers and will have the opportunity to assist with the Racial Justice Task Force's projects. After the summer program, fellows will continue at Ice Miller as a clerk, and if they accept an offer to be an associate for their second summer, they will be eligible for a $10,000 scholarship. Lastly, let's wrap up with a preview of a story Jordan is working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Last week, the Indiana Supreme Court ruled that Indiana Code Section 3545-48, also known as the Revenge Porn Law, is constitutional. Since 2019, the statute has made posting an intimate image a Class A misdemeanor for a first offense and a Level 6 felony for a second offense. An image under the law is defined as a photograph, digital image, or video that depicts sexual intercourse, other sexual conduct, or the exhibition of certain body parts. 
Without the knowledge of his then-girlfriend, Connor Katz in March 2020 captured cell phone video of his girlfriend performing sexual acts. He then sent the video to another ex-girlfriend via the social media app Snapchat. When the woman depicted in the video learned that a video was taken and sent without her knowledge, her lawyer reported the incident to local police. Katz was charged with the Class A misdemeanor, but the Steuben Circuit Court later dismissed the case, concluding the statute was overbroad and unconstitutional under the First Amendment and Indiana Constitution without further explanation. Unanimously, the justices ruled that the statute does not violate either the Free Interchange Clause of the Indiana Constitution or the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, and thus reversed the trial court's ruling. Jordan spoke with Dr. Mary Ann Franks of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, who submitted an amicus brief in support of the constitutionality of the statute. He also spoke with some experts in the Hoosier State to get their take on the recent ruling and what it could mean for similar cases in the future. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. To learn more about these stories or anything else happening in the Indiana legal world, visit theindianalawyer.com. Stick around to hear Jordan's interview with Austin Parrish, Dean of the IU Mowers School of Law. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana University Maurer School of Law Dean and James H. Rudy Professor Austin Parrish. Dean Parrish, thanks so much for joining us this week. Hey, Jordan, great to have have me. Thanks for being here. Thanks yeah. for having me here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, before we get started about talking about the law school, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming dean in uh, 2014? How did you get started in the law, and how did it eventually lead you to where you are today? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Well, you know, I'd uh, I'd been uh, I joined the faculty. I practiced for maybe five or six years in a large firm in Los Angeles, and then had joined the faculty at a regional school out there, Southwestern Law School, and had become, uh, was vice dean. And then uh, when the dean stepped down, I became acting dean there. And uh, that coincided uh, just as I started to apply for this position. The, the connection is that I was, um, uh, I was, I knew uh, Provost Lauren Rubel at the time through uh, some organizations we were working with on curricular reform at a national level with law schools. Uh, my main mentor and, and the dean that hired me as his vice dean was the dean here at IU Bloomington uh, of the law school in, from 1986 to 1990, Brian Garth. And, uh, and then um, my research overlapped with uh, research that Hannah Buxbaum was doing, who was the acting and interim dean here at the law school. So lots of connections. And, uh, but I was fortunate and uh, the stars aligned and uh, uh, Provost Rebel was kind enough to offer me the position here. And I guess the rest was history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, talking about the law school, um, obviously these past two years, we've seen a lot of challenges uh, due to COVID-19. Um, what are some of the biggest changes the law school has undergone since March, 2020 uh, for those maybe looking from the outside in? Yeah. Well, you know, it's been a tough couple of years, and I have to say it makes me grateful for what an amazing group of faculty we have here. Uh, I've got a staff that really pull together, and we've got students that uh, just absolutely phenomenal, and, and I mean that in the broadest sense, not only understanding and, and courteous of their classmates being in different positions, but also willing to sort of uh, 
pitch in and help out with thinking through how we might address things. So in March, just like everybody else, we had to move very quickly uh, to an online format. Um, I was impressed with my colleagues. You know, there's lots of discussion how things at universities and law schools take a long time. Uh, we came together in a series of meetings, figured out how we were going to move online very quickly in those early days. Um, my memory was right before spring break, and we were thinking we'd going to come back, and we never did. And uh, so we managed to pull out a pretty remarkable transition uh, to online education in those early days. And then, um, and then in the fall of 2020, uh, yes, the fall of 2020, we, uh, we came up with an innovative program that allowed us to remain mostly in person for our first year courses when many other law schools had to be online. And so this was pre-vaccine. We, um, we created small classes, uh, no more than 40, 45 students. We had everybody masked. We had everybody socially distanced. We upped the ventilation and filtration systems in all our rooms. We put in some really strict requirements for how to teach classes, um, including distance between the faculty member and the students. Um, we created hybrid approaches so that if a student was out sick, they'd be able to come in online. Um, we imposed on faculty. Some faculty taught twice as many classes as they would normally teach, so that instead of teaching one class of 80 students, they taught two classes of 40 students. I personally taught three classes last year to make sure that we had enough faculty to get through uh, the process, and uh, we basically pulled together, and students were great too, right? It's not the easiest to start as a first-year student to, to be doing both in-person and then online, to having to sort of rotate to being able to be socially distanced and, and they, they did great. And then this year we're, we're in person, but we're taking the requirements seriously. Uh, the National Lawyer School, which is a student organization and the Student Bar Association came together um, and they, uh, they basically purchased KN95 uh, masks for all our students. And, uh, and you know, students have very different family situations. And so, uh, you know, a student who might be 22, fully vaccinated, fully boosted, is in a very different situation than a student who's got a three-year-old at home or is living with an, an elderly parent who's currently going through cancer treatment. And so I think the community has been good at understanding that people are in different circumstances and doing the best under a, a difficult situation to make sure people feel as comfortable as they can. Anyway, that gives you a sense. I don't know if that really covers all of it, but uh, I think we're like many others as we're, we're treating this day by day and, and geez, the information and the guidance keeps changing and uh, uh, we're just doing our best to make sure that our students get it through it with, uh, with continuing to get the rigorous education they had before the pandemic. Absolutely. Uh, kind of building off that, um, do you think, is there any, I know obviously the pandemic's ongoing, but is there anything that law schools, uh, particularly yours, that have learned during this time that they might be able to use going forward? Is there any positives as far as the educational experience or practices that you've uh, seen? Yeah, absolutely. So one, I think, uh, you know, faculty are much more com comfortable with online education and thinking about how to use uh, Zoom and other online mechanisms uh, in a way that uh, might have been, you know, too foreign previously. So even my faculty member who was least technologically savvy jumped into this full, you know, full force and, and learned how to do it. And so in some ways, what it's done is it's made things a lot more uh, convenient or at least more uh, friendly. Uh, I've got faculty who wouldn't turn on a computer before that now, you know, are doing all the bells and whistles. They've got the best Zoom, uh, you know, uh, lighting and, and everything. 
On the other hand, I think it's also underscored the significant limitations of the online environment. And one of the things that's special about the Bloomington campus and about our law school is that students come from all over the world or and certainly over the United States because they want the close-knit uh, community-based experience that we have. And so, you know, unlike uh, many schools in the Midwest, we usually have, I'd say, 180 students in the JD class. We'll have students from 30 different states, usually 110 different undergraduate institutions from three or four countries. If we include our graduate programs, we usually have students coming in from 25 to 30 different countries at any given time. And uh, they come here because there's something nice about being in Bloomington and being able to have a close relationship with faculty and students and staff. And um, when you kind of move to Zoom, you just realize how important that is. And so in some ways, I think it's underscored that online isn't as mysterious as some might have thought. And in fact, it can be very useful for some things. On the other hand, I think it underscores the limitations and that in-person residential education is also really important in creating sort of the relationships and the soft skill mentoring that is so critical to a legal education. One of the things we wanted to touch on uh, is the research done by your faculty through the research centers and some of the programs that support those students. Uh, how have these evolved since you've, uh, you've taken over as Dean and why are these so important uh, to IU? Yeah, you know, I think many people forget that Indiana University in Bloomington is, you know, it's an R1 research institution. It's a member of the AUP. It's one of the leading research institutions in the nation. And uh, I think people sometimes, you know, they just don't realize how much is coming out of the Midwest. There is more funded government and other research occurring in the Big Ten schools uh, in the Midwest than there is on all the UC campus, University of California campuses, and all the Ivy League campuses combined. Uh, it's just massive. And so the law school takes that research mission seriously. And, um, you know, if you think about what we do, uh, we have a core mission, which is to educate the next generation of leaders and lawyers in the country. Um, we also, though, have two other equally important missions. One is to advance the understanding of legal knowledge and law and institutions. That's our research mission. And then also our service mission to give back to the state in many ways. And those are equally important. On the research side, we've got some centers here in Bloomington that just don't exist uh, anywhere else in the world, frankly, or at least are one of a small number in the world. Our center on the global, uh, our Stewart Center on the global legal profession, led by Professor uh, Jay Krishnan, who's just an absolutely fantastic social legal scholar. Uh, the work they do here, uh, there's one center similar in Harvard, I think one at Stanford, and that's about it. And uh, it really is tracking some of the major developments that are occurring in the BRIC nations in China and Brazil and Russia and, uh, and India. And, um, and then uh, it has this signature program, the Stuart Fellows Program, where it sends 20 to 25 students to 12 countries around the world in fully funded global internships. That's extraordinary. There's only a few law schools in the nation that has that, and most of them are not funded. Or you can think of our Center on Constitutional Democracy led by Professor David Williams and Professor Susan Williams. And they're basically uh, creating a new field of constitutional design that is thinking about how do you give advice to post-conflict areas that are trying to make democratic reforms and make changes to constitutions without it leading to civil war. And they've done work in Burma and Liberia and Libya and now Jordan and Ukraine that is absolutely uh, Fantastic. And what's nice about the work they do is they combine it to the work that our students do. 
Um, or you can think of our Center on, uh, on Law, Society, and Culture, our oldest center, which is uh, run by Professor Victor Quintanilla and Professor Jody Madeira. And they run our, our Bradley Fellows Program, which is a program on criminal law and procedure. Uh, but they're doing really important research on reproductive rights, on access to justice, on guns and the law. Or you can think of our Center on Intellectual Property uh, Research, which uh, is led by Professor Mark Janis. And that also is on the forefront of cutting edge things that are occurring in the intellectual property area, but is also providing a tremendous service. We're one of a handful of schools that has uh, programs with the United States Patent Trademark Office in both Indiana and, uh, and Kentucky. So really some uh, fabulous things. More broadly, uh, you know, our faculty are, uh, uh, frankly, I, we're, I'm fortunate. They're some of the best scholars and teachers in the country. Uh, I think we're now up to almost half of our faculty are part of the American Law Institute, have been inducted into that prestigious organization. Um, just last year, uh, Professor Charlie Jay was named as a distinguished university faculty member. Uh, Professor Jessica Eaglin, a fabulous scholar on sentencing law reform, was recently named a junior faculty scholar, so a really unique distinction at the campus. Professor Luis Fuentes Rohr and Professor Cristiano Choer were just named Herman B. Wells professors over the last couple of years. Anyway, that gives you a sense, but just some really interesting work. We've just launched a new law and technology program, which sort of tries to bring together research that our faculty are doing on the areas of cybersecurity, information privacy, big data, intellectual property, et cetera. So um, unfortunately, I could go on for almost an hour about some of the great things my colleagues are doing, but that might give you a little bit of a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are some of your short and long-term goals for the law school? Uh, what should students, professors, alumni, uh, what should they be excited about, you know, looking forward? Yeah, well, um, so, uh, you know, let me, let me break that down in a couple of things. One of the nice things about IU Bloomington is just the tremendous history that exists here. And uh, it's one of the things I find most uh, an honor of being Dean here is that you can look back and those are sort of alums that have done amazing things in the past. I think, I think back of some of our first, right? Uh, Masuji Mirakawa, who graduated in 1905, who was the first Japanese American to practice law anywhere in the United States. Uh, Juanita Kid Stout, 1948, who was the first African-American judge anywhere in, on a state court in the United States, who later became the first African-American woman judge on a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. You can think of Clarine Nardi Riddle, who became the first AG of Connecticut, or, or Frank Checkley, who became the first African-American judge of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, or Shirley Abramson, who became the first woman chief justice of the Wisconsin, or uh, uh, Checkley was West Virginia, and uh, uh, Abramson was Wisconsin. And um, we were the first, uh, Linda Chesham, the first uh, county trial judge, a woman trial judge in Indiana. Sue Shields, the first woman appellate judge in Indiana, the first woman magistrate, uh, federal magistrate judge. Uh, Loretta Rush, uh, the first chief justice in Indiana. Anyway, so great history. And I think sort of living that history and realizing that our current generation sort of stands on the shoulders of giants is really sort of what we're about. Now, if I think of more specific things, one is, um, the amount that we, our students and our faculty and our staff give back to the state in different ways. We're probably uh, one of the largest providers of pro bono, uh, low-income services to the poor in South Central Indiana. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I redirected a million-dollar endowment to assist in providing students scholarships during their summers to help them work uh, uh, in public service. We launched the Rural Justice Initiative, which was a the brainchild of uh, Chief Justice Rush and also uh, appellate judge uh, 
uh, Ted Najem, and that's been a fabulous way that our students work with uh, 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 judges in rural counties on the state courts. And uh, I think you're going to see coming from us some really interesting public interest uh, pro bono initiatives that uh, that might be really big in the next couple of years. Uh, there's been great work going out of the Center on Law and Society with access to justice programs and the Coalition for Court Access. Uh, we launched the Intellectual Property Law Clinic a few years ago, and Professor Norm Hedges, who runs that, uh, is really spurring the innovation economy in, in Indiana. And, uh, and then a number of other things, the creation of the expungement help desk uh, initiated by Jessica Beheit, who uh, was a Skadden fellow who was recently with Indiana Legal Services, the uh, creation of her wills preparation program to assist uh, low-income individuals with end-of-life decisions, um, the, re uh, the rehabilitation and, and expansion of a protective order project, our incarcerated individual uh, legal assistance project, which is currently being run by uh, Sammy Espada, a wonderful student who's just taken that project by uh, the bull by the horns and really expanded the services that we're providing up to uh, inmates in, in the federal penitentiary. Um, so I think one, you're gonna see us continue to embrace on the public interest side. The second thing, which many people don't realize is how globally connected, and we're one of the few schools in the United States that is really at the forefront in the world as being a global law school. Uh, I mentioned the Stuart Fellows Program, uh, the two centers that have global work, the Center on Constitutional Democracy, the Center on the Global Legal Profession. We're one of the few schools that has a course mandatory in the first year for all students where students study the legal profession. And one of the courses they can take as part of that is studying the global legal profession. And these changes that are occurring with technology and globalization that mean basically any lawyer who's graduating needs to know something about um, not just law in the United States, but transnational law. We became the first law school to partner with Fulbright UK, Fulbright Mexico, uh, one of three schools in the United States to partner with Fulbright Ireland, a uh, partnership with Fulbright Hungary. Um, we've, got, uh, we've got special programs in Mexico City and Sao Paulo, Brazil, and, uh, and in Argentina, and uh, uh, a partnership with the Ombudsman and Human Rights in Poland, uh, programs in China and Taiwan. Anyway, uh, a pretty pretty elaborate compared to most schools, and people don't think you'd find that in Bloomington of international connections. So that's number two is I think our global connections in addition to our public service and more local uh, connections. And, uh, and so I'm really excited about that. And then third, uh, you know, geez, I'll, I'll fight anybody. This is the best law school in, in the nation. And our students come from all over and, and are incredibly smart and talented. And, uh, you know, I just this weekend, uh, uh, Amanda Marino, who's a 3L student, just came back and won a national competition as best oralist before three circuit judges. We've got another group that was competing on a, a transactional drafting competition. I see great things happening for our students. Our uh, Black Law Students Association last year won the regional uh, Midwest uh, award for the best chapter in the Midwest. Our Latino Law Students Association, Latinx Law Students Association, were named the national chapter of the year. Um, just great things happening, and, and uh, I think that's going to continue. So we also heard you recently started your own podcast uh, called One More Cold Call. Uh, it features interviews with alumni. Um, what was the inspiration for doing this? And uh, just, just give us kind of a little background on, on what all goes into each episode. Uh, well, so I think, you know, the cold call is a tradition in law schools where you get this Socratic method where a faculty member calls on you in class. And for some, that can be jarring compared to their undergraduate experience. And so we thought, geez, you know, we'd reach out to alumni that we perhaps haven't talked to for a while. 
and you know hear about their careers. Uh, we've got, as I said, alumni from all over the world, and they've done they've done fabulous things. And so we thought, you know, we'd interview alumni in lots of different categories. Some just graduated, and some who've had uh, you know careers over. 30, 40 years. And we finished our first season last, uh, last year. And uh, some wonderful people. We, uh, we interviewed Milt Thompson, right, who uh, uh, just won the Whistler Award or was awarded the Whistler Award by uh, uh, Mayor Hogsett. And, uh, you know, he tells this amazing story about when he graduated, uh, how he banned general counsel of the Pan Am Games. And he was sent down to Cuba to negotiate with Castro over baseball bats and bas uh, baseball teams. And uh, and what an amazing career he had. And then I, I mentioned uh, Clarine Nardi-Riddle, the first uh, woman and youngest attorney general in Connecticut, um, who went on to, to create this organization called No Labels, which is a bipartisan group trying to get through sort of the polarization in Washington. And she's had an amazing career. And it was great to hear about her. And then then really some, uh, you know, some younger alums uh, uh, interviewed Jamal Saul, who's a 2017 graduate who uh, uh, was basically Secretary of Commerce in Florida, ex-military guy who's just done some wonderful things from Florida. Anyway, people should check it out because they're inspiring stories. And uh, uh, to be honest, the motivation was just to be able to record and hear some of the great things that our alumni do and better spread some of the messages. Um, we think it's going to be a resource for students for many years to be able to listen and get a sense of the breadth of what people do with, with the legal degree and the breadth of the great things on how you can make a difference in the community. And uh, I just I just interviewed uh, oh, last week. Uh, it'll, it will come, won't become live until February, but I, I interviewed Colleen Cotter, who uh, in 1990 graduate of law school, who has been the executive director of uh, Cleveland's Legal Aid, and what a career dedicated to public service. And uh, uh, and then I also interviewed Tony Prather, who's a partner at Barnes and Thornburg, uh, just up in Indy. Uh, but not only talking about his practice, but how he's given back over the years in so many ways to the local community. And so it's a great way to see how our grads uh, pair being lawyers at a very high and sophisticated level, uh, and also with public service in a wide range of ways. And where can people listen to this? They can listen to this on our website. So you can type in one more cold call and you can find it straight there on SoundCloud, SoundCloud on our website. You can also find it on Apple and Spotify. And uh, the one thing I've got to say, the interviewer, which is me, is a little, a little rough at the, at the edges. So listen to the answers because the alums are fantastic. <laughs> on that, we'll conclude this week's episode. Thanks again to Dean Austin Parrish for joining us this week. Uh, if you haven't caught up yet, be sure to catch previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on the Indiana Lawyer dot com or on your favorite streaming services.